Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Uh, Matthew, now, chapter 6. verse 9, as we come to the final petition of the prayer. Jesus says to his disciples, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thus far, God's word. This week I had the opportunity to have lunch with a ministerial colleague who in a former life was a major executive for um, a company, an American corporation that had operations in the Middle East, and he was in charge of their Middle East operations. And um, I told him after the, the um, conversation we had that the story that he had told me would make for a fitting sermon illustration this week. And uh, I kind of sent him what I was thinking of saying. And he said, yeah, that's great. You're going to have to redact all of the information. You'll see why in a minute. So he's in an unnamed Middle Eastern country working for an unnamed American corporation in the 1990s, 1996 in particular, when Osama bin Laden issues a fatwa, a kill order, against all American businessmen working in the Middle East because he feels that their work there threatens the Muslim way of life. And so the FBI director uh, comes to this uh, friend who now is in ministry, uh, comes to him and he says, what, what are you doing here? You have a target on your back. You and your family, you need to get out of here. And he explained to them that they felt called by the Lord to be here at this time and that they weren't, um, they weren't afraid and they felt like they shouldn't leave at this point. And not long after that, uh, one day, four of his colleagues were driving into work and they were ambushed by jihadists. Uh, and they were shot to death, four of his friends. It was the same route that he always took into work. Um, and it's a story of how the Lord spared him, how the Lord delivered him. And in this prayer, 
we've asked for deliverance to, will it look as dramatic or as exhilarating as this man's story uh, from Bin Laden? Hardly. Uh, we read from Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against, but against rulers and against authorities. Uh, we don't wrestle uh, against terrorists armed with AK-47s, uh, but against cosmic powers, um, against spiritual forces. If it's spiritual, that means you can't see it. And this is the danger in recognizing the threat that uh, really we're facing because we can't see the conflict happening uh, as it takes place within our hearts. We forget how serious it really is. It's a big deal. We forget how insidious Satan is, how deadly sin is, and how important it is to pray this petition. Deliver us from evil. And so tonight I want to impress upon you uh, the threat of temptation, the threat of evil, and the hope uh, that is our deliverance from God, compelling us to pray this prayer of protection all the more fervently. We want to ask a couple questions of our of our text. First, there's a first question that we need to address right off the bat. Does God tempt us? Lead us not into temptation. Does God tempt us? Is it right to pray that when James 1.13 says so clearly, God tempts no one? Isn't Satan the tempter? And both are true. Satan is the tempter and God tempts no one. So what, what do we mean when we're saying lead us not into temptation? Well, we are reminded just because God does not tempt us into evil does not mean that our temptations are outside of his control. Did you hear that? Even though he might not be the one tempting us to do evil things, our temptations are not outside of his control. So we're not praying, God, don't tempt me. You don't need to pray that because he doesn't do that. What, what we're praying is, don't bring me into a tempting situation. Don't bring me into a situation where I will succumb to temptation. And so and to, uh, to understand this petition, the first half of it, lead us not into temptation, to get it properly, we need to grasp the meaning of two words. First is the word lead, and then secondly, temptation. Lead means to bring in, even to carry in. Uh, we find it again in Luke chapter 5. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in. Same word as our text. And to lay him before Jesus. Uh, are there times when God carries us into a tempting situation? There are times. Yes, it's true. He did it to his own son. Think about Luke chapter uh, 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned in the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. That was the direction that God would have him go in that moment. But God's purpose in temptation is always, always, always different than Satan's purpose in temptation. And so this is where we need to understand what the word temptation means. In the Bible, it can mean one of two things. Same word, two different meanings. Uh, it can be translated various ways. It can mean not just temptation, but also trial or a test. And so when God brings us into temptation, he's bringing us into a trial. He wants to test us. He wants to make us the better for it. In the words of John Calvin, Satan tempts that he may destroy, condemn, confound, and cast down. But God, that by proving his own children, he may make trial of their sincerity 
and establish their strength by exercising their strength. He gives us situations in which we can exercise spiritual muscles of fortitude, of of saying no to sin, of, of pursuing holiness. That's why God gives us moments of trial. And so when God brings us into a tempting situation, it's always for our good. And that's why James can write just a few sentences before he says, God tempts no one. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face temptations of various kinds. Usually translated trial. Same word he uses a few verses later. Same word in, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 6. It's the word temptation. So on the one hand, James says, rejoice when you face temptations. Why? Well, when they come from God, when we understand them from a Christian perspective, what do they lead to? Well, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The temptation that God sends is always for our good. Therefore, our, they try us. They make us stronger. And that's why Luther said, one tried Christian is worth a thousand. One tried Christian is worth a thousand. So it's important to get these definitions correct. The Church of England made a terrible blunder back in the late 90s when they voted and and it was passed to alter their Book of Church Order, um, Book of Common Prayer. Uh, They updated the language of the Lord's Prayer so that this petition now reads, Save us from the time of trial. But the time of trial is a good thing for the Christian. That's what we don't We don't want to be saved from that. We want to be saved from Satan using our weakness, our weakness of, of faith and the weakness of our flesh, using that to overcome us, to succumb us into his wiles. That's what we're praying for here. Trials are good. We're praying about temptation. We're praying that God would not give us over to the corrosive effect of temptation, which is what the devil wants. James Boyce paraphrases the petition like this. Keep us from wandering into paths where we'll be tempted by the devil, but if he comes, keep us out of his clutches. Keep us from wandering into paths where we'll be tempted by the devil, but if he comes, keep us out of his clutches. So we ask that God would bring us out of all evil. We, we know he'll do this. He's promised us this. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with every temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape. So that's the first question. Does God tempt us? This prayer then is asking that God would prevent and protect us from the temptations which would be our undoing. So our second question is this. What, what is the evil that we need to be delivered from? We recognize God's not at fault here, so we kind of ask, well, who is? Who's the threat? In a word, sin. More specifically, we can think of that classic um, um, three-prong breakdown of, of sin, the world, the flesh, the devil. The larger catechism reminded us that Satan, the world, and the flesh are ready powerfully to draw us aside and to ensnare us. Similarly, the Heidelberg, we are so weak that we can't stand on our feet for a moment, and our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. It's Heidelberg, question answer 127. So this... Um, three-pronged threat reminds us that temptations come from all fronts. 
temptations arise outside of us. Uh, the world. We say the world, think your friends. Um, think your social circles. Think society in general. Pop culture. Uh, the billboards that you drive by. The ads that, that kind of attack you online or on television. To draw our hearts away from God. Temptations arise from outside of us. These are the kinds of temptations that Jesus faced in his life. But we also have temptations that arise from uh, within us, our own sinful and polluted desires being provoked by, by no one and nothing, just, just want to drift away from God. Now, a Christological point of clarification, Jesus never experienced that kind of temptation. Why not? Because he doesn't have a sinful nature, right? Yes, temptations from without for Jesus, but not from within. Uh, but whether external or internal, Satan is the great orchestrator of these various means of temptation. So that's, that's always the way I have thought about that, that trifold classification, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's really the devil using the world and the flesh. Uh, he's the puppet master, so to speak. He's the one plotting our downfall, and he'll use every weapon at his um, disposal. He doesn't really care. And that's why it's important to, to be reminded that the, the, at verse 13 could very legitimately be translated, I think it is in maybe the NIV, Deliver us from the evil one. The evil one. Sin, listen to, listen to this, friends. Sin is not impersonal. It's not indifferent to you because Satan, the, the, the master of sin, he is a moral being, a, 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 a rational being like you and me. And moral beings need to make decisions. We need, to, we need to take sides. We need to say, this is right and I'm for it, or this is wrong and I'm against it. And you can, you can be sure that Satan has taken his stance against you. He's not indifferent to you. He hates you. He hates you. He wants you dead. He wants you dead to God. And he wants your soul Satan is not someone to trifle with. He knows what he's doing. He's been lying from the beginning, Jesus says. He's subtle, he's crafty, and no offense, but friends, he's just smarter than you. Smarter than me, too. In his book, uh, where he has a commentary on the Lord's Prayer, Thomas uh, Boston, the, the Puritan, lists the subtleties of Satan. And I was marking them down as I was reading through it. And... He had 20 subtleties of Satan. And I circled it with my highlighter. I said, wow, 20 subtleties. And I kept reading a few pages later. I want to return to the subtleties of Satan. 21, 22, 23. 27 was the total number before Boston decided to uh, start a new chapter. He's subtle. He's crafty. He has schemes. Uh, Think about... How he's described in the Bible. Did you know there are three animals that are used as kind of metaphors for Satan? He's the serpent. He's the lion. And he's a dragon. Uh, Parents, which of those three would you be fine if you walked out in the yard and saw your kids playing with them? Hey, you know, what's, uh, you know, what's, what's little Billy doing? Oh, he's just outside rolling around with a dragon. Everything's fine. And yet, isn't that so often how we approach the reality of the evil one? So often we kind of cozy up to the, to the, 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 the slimy scales of that great dragon rather than 
the mighty fortress, the safe refuge that is Christ. What evil do we need to be delivered from? We need to be delivered from the evil one. Who will use the, the alluring world around us? Who will use the weakness of our own desires? Who will use anything to get us to say, thanks God for everything, but actually I'm with this guy. And the moment you do that, you have secured your place in hell forever. I'm sorry, it's serious. We have to be sober about it. We have to deal with it straight on. He will tempt us, tempt us to fall away. So then the third question we want to ask tonight is, well, how can we fight this temptation? You know, the Bible tells us at least twice that I could think of James 4, 1 Peter 5, resist the devil. That's a command. How do we do that? How do we resist the devil and the temptations that he throws at us? Uh, There's a number of practical tips we could go over, um, but... um, I would rather direct your attention to those resources than take the time now. There's a good book-length treatment on this, Thomas Brooks, another Puritan, um, and it's uh, titled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Good book. It's a Puritan paperback. It is readable. Um, That would be a place to start. Joel Beakey has a book, Striving Against Satan. Um, It's like 90 pages. Another place to start. Uh, A lot of it's just common sense, though, when we think about temptation. Take stock of your life. Do a little inventory. Just be honest with yourself. Um, And maybe if you're married or you have a really close friend, you can ask them to to kind of audit you as well. When are you most likely to fall into sin? What's the sin that you keep dealing with that you keep having to uh, repent before God, confess and repent before God? Uh, When do those sins occur so get the data, collect the data, and make then necessary changes. Solitariness is never a good way to fight temptation. Idleness is never a good way to fight temptation. Bring people into your life who can help you with certain struggles. Read your Bible more. And, of course, as we're learning tonight, pray. Prayer is the best antidote to temptation, says one pastor. And it's the best antidote because it's the one that Jesus himself prescribed. You remember the garden? Of Gethsemane, he says to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. How do we not fall into temptation? Jesus says, pray. But these how-tos are really only so helpful, and I am not a self-help guru. So that's not really what I want to spend time doing, you know. Ten tips on how to fight temptation. Um, That's not what we're about here. And I think the Bible gives us a better answer anyway. And it's a simpler answer. And maybe you're going to think, well, that doesn't help me. But here it is. Are you ready? This is how you fight temptation. This is the best way. You need to love Jesus more than your sin. It's as simple as that. In terms of a concept, it's conceptually simple. It's very hard, though. But the point is, you could put in all these safeguards, you could try to do all these steps, you could read all these books, but until you have within your heart this overflowing, this bursting, outbursting love for Jesus because he died for you, and you would never, ever, ever want to do anything that would bring a frown to his face, until you get to that point, you will never, ever be able to completely, to, 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 to ultimately overcome temptation in your life. That's what needs to happen. 
That's the only way we'll be truly successful in fleeing the devil, resisting the devil, fighting temptation. Thomas Chalmers captured that well in the title of his famous 19th century book. Do you know this title? The um, Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Not explosive power. Expulsive. What did he mean by that? Well, you see... Friends, he was saying that the problem with sin and temptation isn't so much our minds, it's not so much our wills, it's our hearts. It's the things we love, it's our affections. Uh, And we have the problem, the reason we sin, the reason we cave to temptation is because we have ill-aligned affections of the heart. But to have a proper affection, a love for Christ, it, it won't allow for there to be room for anything else, any other loves. And so that affection has an expulsive power. It expels all those weaker, pathetic loves that we so often follow after. It expels our bad, weak, and sinful affections. Here's an example. There was a riddle uh, that asked if you had all the most advanced technology in the world, what would be the most effective way to take an empty beaker, an empty glass... And remove all of the air from it. That, that's the riddle. You, everything is at your disposal. What's the easiest way? Uh, the, the, the best way that you can suck the air out and create a vacuum. But the answer to the riddle is actually a, a lot simpler than you might think. The answer to the riddle is fill it with water. Fill it with water. And so in Chalmers' book, he's asking a similar question. What's the most effective way to rid our hearts of of all those nasty loves, those those weak loves for sin and for self, for flesh? And he says there are two possible answers, but really only one works. The first is to convince yourself how wicked the world really is and how unsatisfied you really will be if you fall after. That's kind of like trying to suck the air out of a beaker. But he says, but the, the real answer, the effective answer, is to fill your heart with the love of Christ. And when you fill yourself with the love of God, that leaves no room for the devil. And we see this in the Bible. We see that this is the way overcoming temptation works in the Bible. What do you think is the most famous story of overcoming temptation in the Old Testament? I think it has to be Joseph, right? And Potiphar's wife. You remember the scene. She's, she's very good looking and, and she's um, somewhat attracted to Joseph, but also uh, she's, she's got schemes and everything. But she, she draws him in. She says, come lay with me. Come on. And the language is very forceful. Essentially, get in here now. And, and let's be intimate, right? She's, she's barking orders at him. Let's do it. So you have, you know, this, this figure of authority over Joseph, giving him a command. And then you have, of course, the, the physical uh, a pleasure that would certainly be provoked by the command that's being given. What does Joseph do? Well, we say, yes, he, he flees. Yes, but why? Why does he do it? It's interesting when you look at the story. It's not because he looks inside of himself and his lust and tells himself, my desire for this woman is wrong. He actually looks outside of himself, outside of himself, and he enhances his desire for God. And so we read this in Genesis 39.9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
That's how he overcame temptation. It's not by trying to suppress a bad desire, but to enhance a good desire. He had an affection that was more powerful, more controlling than even the most compelling of tempting situations. And you want that too. You do. You need it. You need it. And so now you're asking, Pastor, how can I get it? Well, it begins by understanding what God has done and what he continues to do for us. In this instance, we should ask, how does God deliver us from evil? That's the final question tonight. How does he do it? And when you hear the answer and when it clicks for you, this will inflame your heart in love for God and for Christ. Your love for sin will diminish. Your love for God will grow. So, what does God in Christ do to keep us from evil, to deliver us from evil? We could note three things. There's the life of Christ uh, that was lived for us, the spirit of Christ that's given to us, and the prayers of Christ that are made for us. First, the very life of Christ. Hebrews tells us uh, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because why? Because he himself suffered when tempted. Christ came into our world and he knew what it was like to be assaulted by all kinds of, of temptation. The temptation to use his power uh, for his own good. Uh, the temptation to flee from the cross as it loomed ever closer. Uh, one commentator actually notes just because um, uh, Jesus was sinless didn't mean that it was easier for him uh, than it was for us when he was tempted. This is what the one commentator says. Uh, his whole life was one of temptation. And the very fact that he had powers and abilities which we do not possess only added to the stress. He was the fullest and most vivid personality that this world has ever known. And the very richness of his human nature exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of temptation. So we have one who comes like us and is tempted like us, but is tempted in a way that's even stronger than us. You know, uh, when, when you are, are faced with enemies on all sides, there will never be a temptation for you. Rather than sacrifice what these enemies, you know, and, and kind of just take what they, what they want to have and, and turn the other cheek, You'll never be tempted to maybe instead call down 10,000 angels and smite them right there. Right? That's a Jesus temptation. Tempted in ways we can't even imagine. Because of his divinity. Because of his perfect humanity. And yet he comes and he's tempted like us. And so what do you think that means for you and me? What do you think Isaiah meant when he prophesied, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the waters, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned and the flame will not consume you. Why? Because I'm right there. This is talking about Jesus. I've gone through the fiery trial with you. He endured the torment and temptation of the soul for our sakes to secure our redemption. So how could you not love such a one who would be willing to go into the fire for you? God answers this prayer for us, this prayer, deliver us from evil. He, he answers it in part by giving us a substitute who endured all kinds of evil and temptation. He took on the full evils of hell so that you and I could have heaven. Do you love him? Do you sense 
the expulsive power of a new affection. Well, that's not all, though, that God in Christ does for us to help us in our fight against temptation. That secures our ultimate victory against evil. But what about in the here and now? Well, we need to be reminded that Christ has done something else. He sent us his spirit. The spirit of God brings to our remembrance all that God has promised to us in the gospel, that Satan will be crushed under our feet, that we will be more than conquerors, that we will overcome the world. But more than that, the spirit of Christ dwelling in us, it's the same spirit that raised him from the dead. Romans 8 says, do you think a spirit that could raise Jesus from the dead couldn't make you say no to sin? Friends, you have no less power than Jesus to fight sin and temptation. You don't, you, you don't have less resources than he had. He's giving you his resource, his own spirit, causing you to love him more. And that is, as we've seen, that's the solution. That's the answer that we need. We need to love him more. Well, a final thing. The life of Christ, the spirit of Christ right now to assure that we have the upper hand in this battle against Satan. We have the prayers of Christ. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. The mediator who was tempted like we are now stands before God's throne and he prays for us. He's praying for you right now. You, by name. He knows you. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I pride myself in being good with names. And there's a dear family here, and they know who they are. And almost every week, I get the kids' names mixed up. And I hate it. Jesus never gets your names mixed up. He knows who you are. And he knows what you need. And he prays for you. Your name is written on his hand. Your name is engraved on his heart. He knows the struggles that you're going through. Your temptations are different than my temptations, different than anybody else's temptation. We all have unique situations. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to pray about that right now. Wow. What's it look like for him to pray for us? Well, we got a little insight in the gospel. Um, Jesus says to Peter, to Simon. Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's what he's doing for us right now. God never says no to his son. He's praying that we would not fail. Tempted, tried, sometimes failing, we, we feel it. He, the victory, wins. The ultimate victory is given to us. We will not fail. We will not fall away. And so Robert Murray McShane was so right to say that if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. He is praying for us in the upper room. And so you don't need to fear the world, the flesh, the devil. Do you love this God who gave you his life, who gave you his spirit, and who right now is giving you his prayers? And I ask you, will you give him your prayers too? That's one of the ways we show our hearts are filled with affection and love for him. We pray to him. And friends, there is nothing more pressing or more vital in your Christian life than that you ask him to keep you from evil and to keep you close to him.
Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the trials that you do send to us. We acknowledge they are for our good, but we know there is another one, Satan, the adversary, the tempter, the liar, who wants us to fall into trials to fail, temptations to succumb and to sin against you. Would you protect us in that moment? Uh, And if that moment comes, would you not allow us to be snatched away? We have no reason to fear that that would be the case. As we look to the life of Christ, he was our substitute. He took on hell for us, the punishment of, of succumbing to temptation, of giving into evil. He experienced that in our place, and he has united us to himself and his victory through his spirit. And even right now, he encourages us sweetly in his prayers for us, praying for our needs specifically, praying for us by name, because he loves us. Lord, we need to love him in return. Give us that new affection that will always be stronger than the, than the fleeting pleasures that sin and temptation try to lure us in with. Let us know that what we have in Christ is better far, by far. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.